Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Farheen Hassan, a research associate at the University of West of England and is currently researching body image, particularly with adolescents in rural India. Today we are going to discuss eating disorders in the Muslim community, body image and the impact of Ramadan. Hello Farheen. Hi Hannah, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. No, thank you for joining me. I'm sorry, I literally can't do words today. I think I've been talking so much today that (laughs) my words are not, they're not coming out well. (laughs) I think it's okay, we all have those days, so it's totally cool. (laughs) Thank you. Well, hopefully you will be doing most of the talking so I can just be all ears. (laughs) So I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think the topic that we're talking about today is really interesting um, and one that I don't think there's much research about. So having you to talk um, feels like a real honour. But I just I guess I wanted to start with your personal experience and that lived experience that you have of having an eating disorder and living in in the Middle East um, within a Muslim community course so I grew up in the United Arab Emirates in Dubai that's where I did most of my schooling and that's where I went for my undergraduate education as well so I spent I've spent like most of my life living there and for people listening in who are not aware of the UAE which is quite rare at this point where everyone is yeah just keeps coming up Dubai keeps coming up everywhere but um, it's a predominantly Muslim country so we it's like a very large Muslim community and even though Dubai is very very multicultural it's still kind of governed by Muslim rulers and Muslim laws which are at the base of everything Um, and I personally come from a Muslim family so I grew up I'm kind of Indian by my ethnicity so I am Indian Muslim so just to give people a bit of context before I kind of go into my um, heritage and experiences and how where I come from really played a big part in that so I had an experience of disordered eating when I was around 18. And I, I'm quite confident that was an eating disorder, but I was never diagnosed by a psychologist or anyone or a professional in any capacity. I kind of self-diagnosed myself as I was studying psychology at the time and what I was going through made a lot of sense when I read the symptoms. And it was quite an isolating experience growing up in a Muslim community where these issues aren't really spoken about. Um, And as you said, they're not really researched. It was a very difficult experience for me personally. It's of course a very difficult experience for anyone to go through. But for me, I felt that pressure even more because I felt like there was no one I could speak to who would, who would understand what I was going through, what I was dealing with. And that in itself is really hard. But then when you kind of try and find other experiences like yours there is nothing which I think makes it even harder because obviously in the west we've come really far with eating disorder discourse and research and we know a lot and we have a lot of work done on this field but in the Muslim community amongst the South Asian community there's still so much taboo there's so much stigma there's so much we don't say that it really makes the experience really difficult in a way that is 
kind of just this added complexity of having this eating disorder and then having no one understand it around you. I think, um, I think reflecting back on this, I think something that came to me earlier when I was thinking about this whole experience of my life was that um, when I kept losing weight rapidly, and I'm really sorry for people listening in if this is triggering, I really apologize for that. Um, but just, yeah, I want to give that warning as well. But when I kept losing weight it was something that I was kind of given so much like applause for and everyone around me was like oh my god you're doing such a great job losing this weight you're doing such a great job not really eating well like my restrictive behaviors were like applauded because no one understood that hey maybe this is not a good thing and maybe we should kind of help her out um so it was a very strange experience it was very very difficult because I think mostly because there was just no knowledge of what what's going on at the time when I was experiencing it, which just made it a lot harder. Yeah, it's actually, it's quite interesting what you've just said about kind of the weight loss being applauded. You mentioned about how Western culture, we've done a lot of research about eating disorders and stuff, but that seems quite a a common correlation in that weight loss is applauded. Do you think that was because, is there a certain body ideal in the Muslim community similar to in the western society where weight loss is applauded because people have that thin ideal is that similar or do you think it was for different reasons I think that's a really really good question and I think a lot to think about in that respect I think one I would say that the body type the body ideal definitely is a huge part like a huge factor and I wouldn't say it's primarily the Muslim community but more the South Asian beauty ideal where Mm. The thin ideal, of course, permeates every aspect of our life now because of our exposure to Western media and just all kinds of media. So the thin ideal being kind of glamorized is really, really common in the South Asian community where our body type isn't inherently similar to the Western ideal because, of, of course, all of us can't look the same. Um, so that is one factor. And I think another one really is just a big one is how food and food and community is so intertwined in South Asian slash Muslim culture. It's that Mm. you're eating meals together. You're kind of talking about food all the time. You're using food to celebrate, to mourn, to do anything. So when kind of how someone eats around you is very much a topic of conversation. So if someone's like not eating a lot, it's almost kind of like this amazement that, oh, wow, you're like dieting, what's going on? Or it's kind of like, everyone's like, oh, why are you dieting? So these kind of conversations come up a lot. And I think in my instance, it was maybe because I had struggled with my weight throughout my childhood. I was always kind of the chubbier, which I don't, now that I look back, I wasn't, but kind of in, if we look at this thin ideal, I was a chubby kid. So I think for ev- like for everyone around me to suddenly see me lose weight, they saw it as me almost kind of winning this battle with my body, which obviously it was a lot more going on than that. So I think there's like so much going on here, but I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that more than the Muslim aspect is the really big South Asian collectivist culture aspect where kind of we just love, we just love talking about food. We just love talking about people's bodies and we don't realize how damaging it is. You know, you said earlier that you were praised for the amount, the little that you were eating. And that kind of shocked Mm -hmm. me because from my perspective, a lot of the kind of community feel feels like it is involves food. So I guess it's it's it almost sounded strange that you said that you were congratulated for the lack of food that you were eating. But then equally, you had people questioning why you weren't eating. Were Were they different people or was that sort of an overall 
Yeah, 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 of course. No, completely. That makes complete sense. And yes, I think I should have specified this, but I think more the applause for less restrictive eating was maybe from my friends. Um, whereas more because my friends are my age, because my friends like me are probably influenced by the thin ideal, because my friends like me have body image issues, which they're trying to kind of overcome. So for them, it's very much like, oh, wow, how did she do that? I want to do that as well. But I think for my family, it was more of a kind of concern that I'm not eating well or I'm not eating enough, but not concern in the sense that, oh, she might have an eating disorder, but more that just because normally this is how much we all eat. We eat together. Why is she eating her meals faster? Why is she not eating for as long as we are? So it's it's just the focus on food is very much the prominent takeaway from that experience for me. It's that kind of you cannot escape a conversation about food and your body type and how much you're eating Mm -hmm. in this kind of culture and this kind of community and it's not enough to kind of raise questions about someone's eating behaviors and I hope things have changed now Um, but about six seven years ago definitely hadn't hadn't enough to kind of question and be like maybe we need some medical help it was more just to have because these conversations are so normalized it was just another one of those conversations which obviously if you're struggling with something like this can be quite damaging kind of the fact that they were commenting on that I guess my question was what was the support after that you know it sounds like they recognized that something had changed but from what you're saying it doesn't sound like there was any actions on it um yeah no not there weren't really any actions and I don't want to also kind of say it as even kind of blaming them or blaming the community but I think it's completely just the lack of knowledge is the lack of awareness is the lack of normalization of these conversations that mm. your eating behaviors can be at risk to yourself and you might need external help I think that concept is still very very foreign to many many kind of South Asian Muslim families Muslim communities and it's a very, very new thing. So there's really no support. It's just, it's very common. It's very normalized. And even till today, when I'm in a room full of like Indian aunties and they're talking about people's bodies and eating behaviors, it's like you're that one person who's trying to stop them and make them see things differently. It's still really hard. And you want to be the person who makes a difference and tells them that this is not okay. But I think it's going to take a lot before that changes and before these kind of conversations don't happen every time people meet up in a group what do you think needs to I guess change in order for there to be those conversations and there to be the space for those conversations I think that's a really important question and important point to even consider and I think at least the way I see at least the way I've grown up I think with any change it needs to start it needs like for my family we don't know when my family makes comments about weight because my brother and I are very like we've really taught our parents I would say we've kind of Mm. made them learn why it's not okay so now they don't do this and they might go in a gathering and stop other people or they may not join in so that's one very small change and I think we need a lot of these small changes from people from my generation from kind of younger generations who have the privilege of education and knowledge and learning that our parents don't to start having these conversations but I think it's also important to add here that in our culture there's this massive 
respect for people who are older, the elders in the family, and not respect almost to the point where you don't question them, where you're supposed to just kind of agree. And we don't have this Western kind of understanding that it's okay to like stand up for yourself, which is very common in the individual cultures. But in collectivist cultures, we don't do that. It's like community, family, whatever is happening, you support it, you stick with it, which makes it even harder to stop something that's so toxic, which it is, which needs to be stopped. But I think I don't want to be too negative. I think we <laughs> just need to keep trying. <laughs> we just need to keep trying. We just need to keep having conversations with people around us, the people who are older than us, who can then have these conversations with people around them. I think we just need to keep having these conversations. It's the only way I see forward. Yeah, I think you're completely right. And I don't think it's negative. I think sometimes when we have these conversations, it can sound negative. But I think sometimes you have to pick out the things that maybe aren't working. But as long as you've got a suggestion for how it can be improved, I think that's a really productive way to be. Um, And I think you're so right in that it's almost... I guess not the responsibility, but if there is something that you think, and I guess this is the same with any topic, our generation has definitely become a lot more open to a lot of different things, whether that is mental health or ethnicity or sexuality, all different topics. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it can sometimes be a difficult conversation to, to have with your parents or your grandparents and say, you know, I know this is a view that you've always had, um, but actually, you know, I've witnessed different things and you, it might be good to see it from a different perspective. But like you said, by you having that conversation that might be a bit uncomfortable with your parents or your grandparents, or whatever, they then might have it with their friends and their friends with their friends. So it's almost like finding a way in and then them mm-hmm. taking it somewhere and dispersing it themselves. Yeah, definitely. 100%. I think and our generation also has so much, we have so much privilege. We have so much privilege that we get to have opinions that are our own. We get to be Mm. so, we get to learn so much. We have social media today that we didn't before. And I think, I think we, yeah, just have to use that privilege to help other people around us learn, I think. And I think like what you said, it's so important to acknowledge what's wrong so we can then have a productive conversation on how to how to make things right. And I think that's that's where we start. I think I also think it's really important not to kind of be in an echo chamber where we kind of, you know, if someone around you is like, no, I don't believe that eating disorders in the South Asian communities are real. I think it's important to not just shut that down and be like, okay, fine, then I'm not going to speak to that person because they're mm-hmm. wrong. I think it's important to then ask that person why do you think so? And maybe try and have a conversation. Of course, we can't change every single person on this planet who thinks something differently from us. But I think I think it's so important to not walk away from those specific conversations or people where you disagree, because sometimes that's where these conversations are needed more than ever. And that's yes. where we make a start. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point to raise in that... Um, often the the people that do have differing opinions are the people to have the conversations with because and I'm not and by that I'm not saying oh I'll have a conversation with someone and I will change their mind but I think Mm -hmm. sometimes it allows you to both have an open conversation and reflect on it and learn from both sides of maybe what each other are thinking and and learn Mm -hmm. um and I guess it's just kind of 
brought up a question for me in that you know if mm-hmm. if you were speaking to somebody um that was saying that they didn't think that south asians could get eating disorders i think one of the reasons that that might be is maybe that they present in a different way that hasn't been researched as much so we're not as aware mm-hmm. of how eating disorders may present and i just wondered you know if you had any insight on on things that may be different if somebody's coming from a from south asia in terms of their presentation i mean i'm sure it's not a blanket statement and things can be exactly the same or they might be different but i think it's an interesting thing to explore definitely i think this is such an interesting question and an area of research i'm really fascinated by because there's so much that we we don't know and i think to answer your question i would say two really important factors that i would think about is whether someone is like of South Asian heritage living in a Western country like myself, like so many people in the UK and America, for example, or are they someone who's always grown up in, for example, in India, in Pakistan, that's been where they've kind of developed their identity because I think that really impacts the role of Western influence. And obviously today we can't escape because we live in such an integrated society, but I think that's a really important point in how we see things around us and I think thinking more specifically about how issues in South Asian cultures or communities kind of present themselves I think a really big one is how much we express what we're going through so there's a lot of kind of research and there's just a lot of knowledge that in collectivist cultures um, especially the older generations there's this focus that you always have to think about the community first your family first which means you can't always put yourself first so if you're going through something people in this these communities may not likely be always open to speaking up Um, there's also the factor that there is a massive stigma around mental health in these in our communities we don't we're trying to change it our generation is trying to change it but we don't really openly acknowledge it because it's usually seen as a, often seen as a personal weakness as kind of you just not trying enough to get over it. So I think we have to acknowledge that if I was kind of a therapist in the West, like that's another thing I would think of that like, why, how have they been able to communicate this? How do they carry a lot of guilt with their disordered eating? Do they feel like they did this to themselves? Do they feel like they can speak to someone about it? Which I think is, a really, really important factor as well. And another thing I wanted to add was about how important it is to see how these disorders manifest in a community situation because we eat all of our meals together. We eat or we share all our meals. We share all conversations over meals. And I think if someone has an eating disorder in a South Asian community, because normally we expect that person who has an eating disorder would kind of eat their meals alone so that they can throw what they're eating or restrict what they're eating. But that is really hard when you are eating on a table of four to six people and everyone around you is sharing from the same bowl and we're all eating together. And that's another thing to manage and how how do we navigate those experiences? Because it may not necessarily be as clear cut as the symptoms you would read in the DSM currently, because that's very associated with this individualistic culture where you can just leave and 
eat alone. I think if any Asians who listen to this, they'll agree that if you kind of tell your parents you don't want to eat dinner with them, you will get spanked. Like that's not an option. We eat meals together. That's how it works. That's how our families are. Um, so it's very important to also acknowledge that. And I really haven't seen much of these conversations in research so far in how kind of being in a collectivist culture makes such a big difference. And I think, and on a very personal level, I think I really struggle to find a therapist in the West who would understand these factors and how an eating disorder is not just about the individual. It's about so much to do with family and culture and collective guilt um, that just kind of looking at the symptoms we currently understand or the factors we currently understand just aren't enough to fully understand what someone is going through if they're from a different culture or ethnicity. Yeah, I definitely think that, unfortunately, at the moment, I think we have quite a narrow mind about um, the way that eating disorders do present. And I guess what what you were saying, it was really interesting what you were saying about that collective culture, because I know from my personal experience of having an eating disorder that that, that's exactly what happened for me was I just said, oh, you know, I don't want to eat dinner with you. And I guess from that, does that mean, you know, if somebody had any medical condition does that then become sort of a a family issue rather than an independent medical issue if that makes sense yes yes definitely it does I think um I think just kind of giving you an example of something like this when I went to the when I was home a few weeks back and I went to see the doctor for a full checkup and we went to get my reports my entire family came to the doctor's office, like my parents wow. and my brother to get my reports. And I'm, I'm 27 years old. So mm-hmm. obviously I'm entitled to privacy and I can tell them that please leave, but this is, this is not the norm. Um, and it's, it's not because we're intrusive. It's not because we want to gossip. It's because we all genuinely care. Like one person's mm-hmm. problem is everyone's problem in our oh. families and our culture. And yeah, it's a very collectivist thing. It's a, and it could mean on the negative side that someone is less likely to speak up about what they're going through because you're not just speaking to one person or you're not just speaking to one doctor, you're speaking to everyone, everyone in your family is involved. And I think when I speak about the guilt, I think a big part of that also is that you don't want your parents to feel that this is their fault or that they're doing something mm-hmm. wrong. I think, I think boundaries we're not very good at boundaries in our culture. And it often means that it can make things really hard. If you're going through something, it can also mean that we have this amazing support system, obviously, and that Mm. everyone's always there to be there for you. But it obviously has this other negative side when you're struggling with something and already don't know who to speak to that you may be less likely to have these conversations with people in your family. Sure. And I think it's interesting what you said about boundaries, because I think one thing from working in eating disorders that I've recognized in clients is that setting boundaries and maybe assertiveness is something that is really challenging with an eating disorder. Therefore, Mm -hmm. if you've got that on top of um, maybe in your family, you struggle to set boundaries because of the kind of organization of your family. I can imagine that to be quite challenging on on top of the eating disorder as well yes definitely and I think I think South Asian patients or people in our culture would really benefit from family therapy because I think sometimes we may understand what we're dealing with but it's so difficult to explain to the 
like to our parents, to our siblings, what's happening, which is why I think this is less common in the West, but very common in eating disorder treatment um, in India, in Pakistan, where they have conversations with the whole family and kind of try and kind of explain to them what's going on because they don't always understand. And it's so important for the family to be on board and as with any other, as with any patient, as with any country, but I think it's even more so in South Asian, it's so important for the family to understand. So they respect, like you said, so they have these boundaries so they can support the person going through these things, which I think is very inherent in our culture. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think like you said, with, with anybody, it's important to have the family on board, but maybe within a community where I mean, I think in society, in overall, there's there's less known about eating disorders and how they present in Muslim communities. So I guess that would be even more important to have that sort of family environment and be able to explain um, what's going on and how how the family can support the the individual that is struggling. Um, I wanted Definitely. to talk about mm-hmm. your the work that you've been doing. Um, in terms of the body image yeah. and stuff because I think w- we spoke before and it was absolutely fascinating the stuff that that you've kind of what found out from your studies um so I know that you did a study um which involved Ramadan um I guess for people listening I'm hoping that there will be individuals that um can relate to this but I guess if people are listening and they're not sure what Ramadan is would you mind just explaining Yes, of course. Um, so Ramadan is a really special um, and holy month for the Muslim community. It's the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, and it's a month where all Muslims around the world fast from sun sunrise to sunset. Um, mm-hmm. So when we say we fast, we don't eat or drink anything. We don't consume any food or liquids for the whole day um, and the timing of the fast really varies based on where you live so if you're in the UK and Ramadan like this year was in the summer so you're fasting for over 18 hours which is really long Um, when I'm home in Dubai the fasts are much shorter because they end at around 7 p.m Um, so it really varies where you're located geographically which determines the length of the fast because we wait to see the sunrise to start the fast and then the sunset to end the fast Um, and apart from all of those technicalities, another really important, like a special thing about Ramadan is that um, it's a really, it's a really beautiful month. It's when you kind of look forward to your meal at the at the end of the day, which is called iftar to end your fast. Um, it's a time of the month where everyone breaks their fast together. So everyone in the family will come and eat the meal together. We spend hours preparing the final iftar meal before breaking our fast. Um, if you're in a Muslim country when you're fasting, you can just kind of feel Ramadan in the air because mm-hmm. everyone will just sleep during the day and then come out at night after they've eaten and just be around. And it's a very big, big celebration of fasting, of food, of community, of culture. Um, so yeah, that's that's Ramadan in a nutshell. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a fantastic celebration. And I think the fact that it's such a communal feeling must be incredible. Um, and I don't, I don't want to be negative about it, um in the slightest but I know that you've done your research looking at body image and how um Ramadan has affected that and I guess I just want to kind of preface this with I'm not 
trying this is not me being negative at all and I know that fasting is part of the um, religion and everything I guess we're just exploring this from the perspective of the impact that that might have on somebody that is struggling with an eating disorder and I guess this conversation I would like to hope would be rather than kind of pointing the negatives would be if somebody is struggling with their body image or with an eating disorder how best to navigate the situation because obviously as a um, religious celebration you will want to get involved um, but equally I think it's super important to have these conversations to know that people aren't alone in in maybe these feelings and and the difficulty of balancing your religion and your mental health if that's something that you're struggling with. That was beautifully said. No, thank you. So yeah, I wanted to talk about what you kind of found out from the study. So I guess, do you want to explain sort of what the study was, and then the kind of major findings that you had in terms of body image and different eating patterns and how they were affected? Yes, of course. So I'll, um, yeah, so I completely agree with everything you said that Ramadan is a really beautiful month and it's a religious obligation, but also a religious celebration. And um, this was in no way to be negative. I'm Muslim and I fast when I can. Um, and I think this month is beautiful, but I think it's also important to think of the other side that we're not eating for over 18 hours a day. We're mm-hmm. constantly talking about food. We're constantly focusing on food. So there is this other side which can be which can be quite difficult, which can be quite triggering for some some people who have this history, who have these struggles, and that's where I wanted to start looking. That's what I wanted to explore. Um, so I recruited a sample of fourteen women living in the UK, um, and I conducted two interviews with them: one just at the end of the fasting month, and then another follow up around four to six weeks after Ramadan had ended. Um, And we asked them questions around their eating behaviors. So what were they eating while fasting? And then following up six weeks later, how their eating behaviors have evolved, Um, asking them about their body image during the month of Ramadan and after, about their mood, about how they felt when they could eat at iftar, how they've been coping with eating three to four meals a day once Ramadan has ended. So really trying to understand how or if Ramadan can impact people's eating behaviors, dietary patterns and body image. And if so, do these changes sustain themselves six weeks later or do they end right after Ramadan's over and people just kind of revert back to normal eating patterns? And it was a really interesting study because there hasn't been much work done looking at this. There certainly hasn't been any qualitative explorations, any interview-based research. So we were really keen to understand what is going on and to kind of try and make our findings more kind of digestible and something that people would really um, not find kind of boring scientific terms. I think some of the really important key takeaways from our findings were that one, um, all the women, majority of the women, I would say, spoke about how they felt this intense guilt or pressure to fast from the members of their community so even if they love Ramadan even if they love fasting that was very like that was on one side but the other side of it was that on some days if they couldn't fast or if they didn't feel up to it or if they were struggling they didn't feel like they could say that they didn't want to fast so there was a lot of kind of guilt they were carrying because when I asked a lot of women why do you fast in Ramadan or 
how would your family respond to you not fasting they 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 didn't have an answer they just they'd never thought of it they never considered what would happen if they stopped fasting it was just kind of something so it was always it had to be done it was it was a requirement so there was a lot of kind of a big community aspect um which was really interesting to think about because community is a massive part of fasting in ramadan but it can also have this negative impact where you then feel guilty if you don't do what everyone around you is doing or if you feel like you can't have an autonomy in this so they really didn't feel like they had an autonomy they were all between the ages of 18 to 35 so they were adult they were adult women um and then thinking about how ramadan impacted their eating behaviors and body image uh, most of the women talked about how ramadan allowed them to have more control over their diet because they were eating only one meal a day essentially um so they could really control what they put into it what they were eating and it helped them really restrict their eating behaviors and um all of the women who spoke about this were really were almost really proud of it they saw it as an achievement that they could use ramadan as a way to restrict what they were eating and a lot of these women in the follow up interviews then talked about how they really felt that they were out of control now that ramadan was over and now they were eating more and they were slipping up and no longer able to follow up these restrictions mm. um and a few women were in fact still following these eating patterns up from ramadan about 6 weeks later they were trying wow. to eat the same foods um and they felt really guilty when they couldn't when they couldn't keep up that routine because obviously now they're not they're not fasting they're going out they're meeting people so it changes a lot and it came with a lot of mm. lot of guilt for them um which was really sad um and another really important theme or finding we had was that these women really felt increasingly preoccupied with food and with thoughts of food and their body image during the course of fasting and the month after so they were thinking more about um what they were eating they were thinking about their appearance they were increasingly weighing themselves more than they ever had before and a lot of them said that they felt this was a result of them fasting this was a result of kind of just being in a month where every conversation is about food and it was almost triggering in the way that this preoccupation was a very big part of their day that they were thinking about what they'll eat how that's going to make them feel if they should restrict if they shouldn't restrict so it was very much something that was at the forefront of their mind um and this was this was really interesting but i also do want to add that we conducted this research during the pandemic so we conducted this research in 2020 in july should be in july to september and the pandemic was obviously a really big part of our lives back then so we have to think about how this might also have aggravated how they were feeling and i think we can definitely take away from this that ramadan mixed with being at home or being a part of the pandemic really wasn't good for most of the women we spoke to is it's that because of maybe the isolation that came with covid or why do you think that the mix for people wasn't good So this was a really interesting part of our finding because we did ask the women how they feel that covid impacted their experience of ramadan and how is it usually different and of course this is a very self report perspective um but this is what they said they felt but it was interesting because about a half of the women said that it was because 
they're constantly at home that they're thinking about parts of their body and noticing parts of their body that mm. they wouldn't normally they have nothing to distract them with so they're not even snacking they're not eating they're not meeting people so they're just at home thinking um which was quite and we know we know we have so much research out there now which really directly correlates the pandemic with increased instances of anxiety and body image concerns so we know that that is a factor but then we had another interesting subset of these participants who in fact felt that covid helped them covid and the religion together were protective because um they weren't going to meet people so they didn't have to dress up they didn't have to think about how they were looking and instead they could just really focus on the month of ramadan they could focus on their religiosity they could focus on praying and not worry about how they looked so for some of them it was almost protective whereas for the others it was even worse so i think we we have two perspectives and obviously we don't we don't know enough to say which one is really the blanket probably neither i think everyone has individual experiences sure. but um yeah this could be one reason why they felt this way yeah i suppose um from my perspective when when i heard you talk then i, I don't think either 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 outcome is actually beneficial because i think sometimes um kind of the protective one that you were talking about in that not needing mm. to kind of get dressed up or um because you're not going to see people I think that can sometimes become a negative reinforcement of sort of not looking after yourself um and also almost that kind of negative reinforcement of you don't need to put on nice clothes so you start hiding behind baggy clothes or whatever and your body image gets affected that way but equally I guess that on the other side of you know constantly being preoccupied by the way that you look because you are at home um, and I think that was quite a common trend during Covid was people didn't have necessarily that distraction of going out for work and um, you know things like binging might have increased because it was it was more accessible and more easily accessible being at home all the time um and I guess the isolation and the loneliness kind of creeping in as well so it's it's kind of interesting how the I guess the things that came up in your study um kind of seem like the overall impact of COVID on eating disorders but I guess would have been amplified even more by the fact that people were going for long periods of time without eating and like you say that that preoccupation of food I can imagine you know you're, you're just waiting for that evening you know for the sunset to happen so you can eat did you have quite a few people um or I guess was there anything about people binging um at the kind of when the when the sun set and when they were then able to eat so a lot of participants did speak about how they felt almost this lack of control when they could mm. eat at iftar or a lot of them would eat a lot and then they would feel really guilty afterwards um, because they had eaten too much. But we really regret that as a big limitation of our research that we didn't really explore this binge eating aspect because mm. when we think about it now, it's so obvious that there would be a link here that people would feel that way or very possibly feel that way but we didn't go in depth enough mm -hmm. to have to have a finding based on that but this year I've been working with men and 
kind of um, exploring their experiences of fasting. And there's a lot of, we've asked them quite a few direct questions about binge eating or um, overeating or loss of eating. And um, the majority of them do kind of su support that. They say that they felt that they were eating almost mindlessly um, after breaking their fast. So I think there mm. is there is something going on here that needs further research, that needs further exploration because uh, we don't we don't know enough about binge eating and fasting. I think there's a lot of work that's needed here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess as well, another question that's just I've popped into my head is I I would imagine, I don't know, I guess that's why I'm posing the question, but going from not eating all day to then eating mm -hmm. quite a large amount of food, whether that is through binge eating or just having that meal at the end of the day I can imagine that the your body shape would change quite a lot so did anybody speak about kind of the the impact that that had on on their the way that they saw their body um in terms of the way that their body changed throughout the day yes that's a really really interesting point a really important one as well because that definitely is a big part of fasting because obviously if you're not eating all day, your stomach is really flat and then you're suddenly eating even a little bit of food, a lot of water and you're distended. So a few women spoke about this experience and how kind of this feeling of being almost bloated at the end of the day can be quite, can be quite triggering. There's also a lot of anecdotal accounts on the internet where a few women who have shared their experiences of fasting in Ramadan triggering their disordered eating have shared about um, how this kind of change in body shape can be very difficult to come to terms with, even though you kind of rationally know that you haven't eaten that much or that you've been fasting all day, but it can be very difficult to come to terms with it, which increases, which increases preoccupation in the women, the study we're feeling with their body image, with what they're eating, because it then intensifies this guilt um, mm. if they focus more on their body and how it's gotten bigger, even though, of course, there's a rational reason for it, but it doesn't always work. Sure. And I can imagine, I guess, from like my personal experience of it, I, I can imagine that you then start to develop thoughts of, oh, well, you you haven't eaten all day, so you know why can't you keep that up forever because we we all know that that isn't something that can be sustained forever but I guess yeah. it's kind of that guilt that you were talking about before in that I suppose there's so much guilt when you have an eating disorder anyway but then with the kind of religious aspect of wanting to participate in Ramadan because it is something that's so important then there's that guilt of maybe not feeling like you're doing it right or what have you I can imagine all of that encompassed together can be really really difficult to navigate yeah definitely I think that's a really important point which can be a real trigger for people if who have these struggles because if you haven't eaten all day it can just play tricks on your mind like you say you can just mm. think I can just keep this up and in my personal experience, that has been a really big trigger and a big reason I really have to think before fasting because even after you've been in recovery, you can't always control where your mind goes. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's it goes to places you don't want it to and it's really hard to take a step back. And I think 
the reason I worry so much for like the people in my community is because we don't have resources. So if someone is experiencing that or someone is feeling that way, there aren't a lot of people out there who understand there isn't a lot of research which says that, yes, this is normal or how can you help or what can you do if you're going through mm -hmm. this? Um, and that's why we need to have more of these conversations so that people know that this way that they're feeling isn't okay and that they could do something about it to help them um, and that they don't have to feel this way. Yeah, I guess I know I've got a friend um, that she does um, Ramadan because her dad's Muslim and I had a conversation with her about this before um, and she said that you know if you have a medical complication which means you can't participate you would be exempt but she yeah. when I asked her wasn't sure if an eating disorder would come under that which it shocked me because to me that is definitely a medical complication but do you think it would be and but do you think even if it would do you think people would respond in a positive I guess not a positive way but do you think it would be acceptable I think that an eating disorder would definitely count as a medical condition or as grounds for not fasting because to the best of my knowledge our religion says that if in any way fasting is harmful for you then you shouldn't fast. You should give an equivalent of it in charity, for example. Um, for example, if you're diabetic or something like that and fasting will actually make your health worse is a very, like one very medical example to explain that you shouldn't fast. So definitely, as far as I see it, eating disorder comes into that so clearly, but whether people accept that, whether people acknowledge that, I think is a lot harder to, to give an answer to because, I don't think so. I think I think that we still don't accept eating disorders as a really serious condition. And I think a real big reason for that is that we don't understand the damage they can cause. Um, and we don't understand that they can have long lasting physical like impacts on people's health. Um, and I think really a big reason for that as we've been talking is just the lack of knowledge, the lack of understanding and it's just this assumption in our community and I think in many communities where we don't understand this, that why can't you eat, like just just eat, just eat something. Like I've been told this before. Um, so I think it's just people don't understand. They don't understand what really is going on. And I think that's why probably people who are experiencing something like this feel so much guilt. Or I know friends, I know people from my research who said that they fast they pretend to fast, but they eat in hiding because they don't feel like they can tell people around them that they're not fasting, which is which is really sad because no one should have to feel that way. But I guess that's what they feel is the best option for them. Mm. Yeah, and that sounds really difficult because it sounds like it's almost augmenting some of the behaviours that we do see in eating disorders, like those, I guess, secretive eating patterns. I wanted to thank you so much for that insight because I think I think it's really interesting and I think um, because it is something that is you know a cultural celebration I think sometimes it can be difficult to have those conversations so I'm sure if people are listening um, that will have been really comforting to hear that other people maybe struggle um, around Ramadan as well um, so I've got a new part of the podcast which is two mm -hmm. weeks old so no three it will be this will be the third week that we've done it um so okay. basically 
I've the the thing of the pod it's called what we've been wanting to ask like the full of beans um but mm. it's basically I've asked the full of beans community what questions they have um for a specific topic and so the question that I asked today was what would you like to know about eating disorders in the Muslim community um particularly mm. around Ramadan um so I've got two questions for you so okay, that's interesting <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to think so. I I just thought it'd be really nice to get other people to ask questions rather than it just being me all the time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the first question um, is: mm-hmm. How do I speak to my family about my eating disorder and mental health? And I'm assuming because um, the question was, "What do you want to know about Muslim communities?" That this individual mm-hmm. is is from a Muslim family. Yeah. Um, I think. The first one that helped me in this position many years ago is, well, doing your research and really knowing and learning for yourself that you're not alone, that this is not something that just you're going through and that this is something that many people around you are going through. And this might help your family understand that this is something that really is common Sadly, this is not something that only happens in the West. We're all struggling with it. And I think really help them understand how you're experiencing this and that it's not their fault. It's not because they didn't help you through things. It's not because you're not praying or it's because not because you're not a good Muslim, but because you have an illness. And what can really help is seeing a professional seeing a doctor and that you know they need to help you through it and maybe maybe going to some therapy sessions together as a family so they help so they can understand what you're going through but I think just be patient with them as well because I think this is something they might struggle with as well just be patient but keep talking to people around you so you're not alone talk to your friends talk to whoever you trust so that you have a support system while your family tries to process this yeah I think that was that was beautifully put and I really like the fact that you came from both angles there and sort of have the patience with your family because this might not be something they've experienced but equally talk to other people about it and I feel like unfortunately or fortunately I'm not quite sure which way this will be more common than maybe is expected and I think often when we start having these conversations people do often say yeah I feel the same and and there's I think there's comfort in knowing that you're not alone in that sort of thing. And they might have tips as well of how they brought it up with their family. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Glad that um, helpful. And then the second question um, is, how do I navigate? And I, I guess we've already discussed this a little bit, um, but how mm-hmm. would I navigate comments around food um, at social occasions? honestly I would say shut it down um Mm -hmm. if someone comments about your food just tell them that you're doing what's best for you I think I've tried to be polite I've tried to be kind (laughs) I've tried the psychology route I've tried the body research route and honestly none of it works so I've just resorted to now just telling all of them like thank you for your opinion but I'm just gonna do what works for me and I would say do not give in to peer pressure like if they're forcing you to eat more than you want or they're kind of guilting you for eating too much 
whatever it is, just kind of know that you're doing what works for your body and for yourself. And they'll talk regardless. They'll talk if you eat too much. They'll talk if you eat too little. Like just yeah. stand your ground and yeah, just tell them to respect your opinions because that is the only thing that worked for me. If anything else worked for you, I would love to hear about it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a really um good way to put it in that kind of just say, you know, I think maybe try and say it with an open mind. Um not I'm yeah. not saying that this is what you were suggesting at all but I think sometimes in those situations we can come across a bit defensive um and so maybe to say you know I, I don't want to talk about that or um you know can we not have that conversation right now um or equally I I would often um if like I was with my grandparents or something and they commented on my food I'd just be like so did anybody watch blah 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 on the tv um because I think it makes it quite obvious that you don't want to talk about it but equally you don't have to say you know if you feel uncomfortable saying I don't want to talk about that um it it's that way but I think that just take courage to do um (laughs) <laughs> thank you yeah. <laughs> I became quite good at, um, at that um, so equally if it is just easier for you to to walk away like or equally just just do that um, you don't have yeah. to be engaged in those conversations if they're not how you feel comfortable yeah just do what works for you yeah exactly I think that's the most important thing isn't it it's making sure you're comfortable and doing what works for you um yeah so it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you and thank you so much for your insight and all the research that you're doing because it sounds absolutely incredible um and I want to keep in touch to make sure that I find out everything you're doing because I find it fascinating oh thank you so much and thank you so much for having me and for giving me this platform to have this really important conversation and thank you for the amazing work you're doing with this podcast and for raising awareness about eating disorders and in different communities so yeah keep doing you I really found the insight into eating disorders in Muslim communities really useful and interesting and I think it's so important that we do further research on this to make sure that individuals in those communities are getting the right support. Next week we'll be joined by Chuck Snowuba who is a specialist doctor in eating disorders. Together we talk about the treatment of eating disorders in hospitals, Together we talk about his role in the hospital and the treatment of eating disorders. We talk about GPs, medical consequences, what needs to change, increased education and awareness and so many other things to do with his role. Early, picking everything up earlier, because, but this doesn't mean that if someone gets picked up later that all is lost, all hope is lost. Because in an ideal world you would want more therapists available, you would want more inpatient units available. You know, currently we're discharging people who, in my head, I feel like, oh my goodness, if only you can spend another six months in not necessarily a hospital. We don't want any institutionalization, but we want you in a place where you can get support on how to live your life. Um, And so you can actually very slow transition out. Let's get some of these behaviors, correct behaviors, deeply embedded into the psyche, you know, to actually 
it can again increase your chances of a proper recovery if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe eating disorders are crippling illnesses but with the right support they can be recovered from we really hope you enjoyed this episode but if you require more support right now please look into charities such as first steps and beat for support or talk to someone you trust